get right into it this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. We were here last week. We're going to spend another week in this passage considering what this passage points to. And actually, we're going to be jumping around. If you notice on the verses up there, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 23. Those are the primary passages that we're going to be looking more closely at. The rest of the verses down below are just supplemental to that. So as we go in the study this morning, I especially want to encourage you to be in those first four verses with me. To read along, to watch very carefully and very closely, because there's a lot of learning that I believe the Lord wants us to do here. And not a little unlearning as well, as I found in in studying this last week. But Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning again in verse 12, If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. Down in verse 16. It shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, the doorpost, and he shall be your servant forever, and you shall do likewise to your maidservant. Father, we, Lord, we open up the scriptures and land before you today. We gather, Lord, as, as children in a classroom this morning, to be taught of you and to learn of you and to grow because of you. Spirit, we don't gather around a pastor or a person this morning, but around your word, and we come seeking your Holy Spirit to teach us, to explain us things. And may we, Father, rest first and foremost on your word, and not on traditions, not on our history, not on the things that we think we know, but on the things that your Spirit knows. Would you reveal that to us today? That we might, Father, learn to pattern our lives truly after Jesus Christ servants of the Most High God thank you Lord bless the study of your word this morning in Jesus precious name we pray Amen well last week we considered the characteristics of a servant who would give up his freedom a servant who would choose to remain in the master's household someone who for six years has served and served well been a part of the master's house but now when the day of freedom comes as the bell rings and the door is open and he can be free he says no I don't want to go I don't want to be free I want to stay with my master we saw last week it's a clear allusion to Jesus himself and to our relationship with him as our master we talked about how the servant of the Lord must love the master a true servant of the Lord loves the master and I asked the question do you love the Lord we had a pretty resounding yes and amen most people that, that morning last week said yes I love the Lord but the servant of the Lord not, must not only love the master the servant of the Lord must love the master's household and I asked do you love the church and it was not quite so resounding <laughs> because we look around and we know what that means don't we but Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says while we have opportunity Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You mean preference for other Christians and for the church and for the family of God? Absolutely. Especially to those of the household of faith. Do you love the master's household? And the servant also of the Lord must love serving in the master's house. 
And they ask, can you eagerly say, I love serving in the Master's house. Do you love to serve the Lord? To be in His household, to serve in His house. Because that's where the heart of the servant beats. Now, the timing of all this is very important for us at the bridge. At this season for our fellowship. Because it's, we believe, a time to call for a new role in this household of faith. But to do this today, I want to walk out three different Greek words related to serving. Three words that I want you to look at to consider to process. Three words. Now, I love the fact that the scriptures speak so clearly. God chose, in, in His wisdom, to write in what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, in mostly Hebrew. It's a powerful language, a colorful language, a very descriptive language. The New Testament scriptures, mostly in Greek, which is equally as colorful and powerful and specific. And so when we think of the word servant, which is the word we're looking at, and what it truly means to be a servant of the Lord, three different words describe what you might see translated in your Bibles as servant. Three words. Those words mean specifically, and if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes this morning, because this is, this is definitely a note-taking type of a lesson. The three words are as follows, and here's your outline. Stewards, servants, and slaves. Stewards, servants, and slaves. Let's consider the first word. The first word is steward. It's oikonomos. In the Greek, oikonomos. If you're spelling that out, you can spell it O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Oikonomos is the word steward. And in the scriptures, it literally means a house manager. It's someone who administrates, who oversees, literally, the affairs of the household. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 says, Of this church, Paul speaking, that I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, that word steward wasn't even originally a part of my study this last week. I came to it kind of late in the week. I wasn't going to add it. But I briefly paused to mention it here because we already have people in that role at the bridge. As an actual office, if you will, the role of steward, it's a servant role. It speaks of elders, overseers, shepherds. Titus chapter 1 verse 7 says the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. It has that implication of managing the household, of overseeing what's going on. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And what's interesting is right there in that verse we have three aspects of one role that are very clear. The word elder, the word shepherd, and the word overseer, all three used. You might have heard bishops, you've heard elders, you've heard pastors. Those are the three words, but they're all speaking of that managing steward role. It's important to note this because there's an aspect of management to the role of elder or shepherd. The elder is, to a degree, a manager of the household. However... However, and don't miss this, especially those who are shepherds, the scripture teaches that an elder shepherd overseer is to be a manager of the household as a servant to the master. And far too many church leaderships have forgotten that. To be an elder in a church 
is not to lord it over. It is to be a servant of the master. To recognize that this fellowship, any fellowship really, but speaking about the bridge, this fellowship belongs to the Lord, not to the eldership. It belongs to the Lord, not to the pastor. It is not the pastor's church. People will come to me and say, Rick, I'm going to come visit your church. I don't like the word your church because it's not my church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, blood bought by Him. It's the church that God says, I will add daily to those, those to the church who are being saved. Jesus says, I will build my church. And nowhere in Scripture do we see an elder taking authority over that, saying it's mine. It belongs to the Lord. Elders are simply stewards of the household, servants to the Master. It's a great reminder to anyone who would shepherd a flock. This ain't my house, I just work here. So we have this first serving word, steward, and that's simply what it means to manage, to oversee, to kind of look at and, and care for the household in that way. But listen, listen, if we want to be more like Jesus, we need to learn to take it down a notch. As Les likes to say, we need to learn to flip this whole thing upside down. Because the view in most churches today is leadership is a climbing up. You go from basic church member to step two, maybe a deacon if you you know if you're so qualified, to step three, maybe an elder and or a pastor, to step four, you know, if there's an opening in the Trinity, maybe. You know, you can and, and it's just it's a heading upward. It's a climbing of the ladder. And you know what? There is no such thing in the economy of God. The economy of God is not a call to climb upward. It is a call to climb downward to develop, to learn the heart of a servant. And what's interesting to me when I think about the three words, steward, servant, and slave, steward starts here, but the further down you go, the more blessed you become. The further down you go, the more like Jesus you truly are. So to anyone who would aspire to be an elder, I'd say, hey, that's great. But just understand, that's actually the bottom rung. There are more precious roles that the Lord looks at beyond simply steward. Now to flip this whole church model upside down, we've got to unlearn a few things. To disentangle ourselves literally from hundreds of years of tradition. And the best way to do this is always to go directly to the Word of God and see what Scripture truly teaches. Because in many cases we have forgotten or we just don't know. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And get ready to jot down a few things here. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to write down as much as I would like to. You can do that on your own time. But this section of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is going to address to young Pastor Timothy the role, the office of deacon. Some have said, oh, there's no such thing as an office of deacon. It's just, it's just the word servants, and so it's just anybody who serves. Not so, my friends. Paul is very clear that we have a role here. So word number two, word number one was steward. Word number two, and we're going to spend some time on this one, is servant. The word is diakonos. Diakonos. It literally means a waiter. One who waits on the table of a king or a master. A waiter of tables. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, Deacons, diakonos, likewise must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. It's kind of funny because elders says not addicted to wine. Deacons says not addicted, addicted to much wines. So, you know, there are those of you out there who might prefer deacons. 
to note about the servant, the diakonos, the role of the servant is just that. It is a role. It is a role. What Paul is doing here with Timothy is he's talking about a selection process. He's just talked about selecting elders, what they should look like, men who are going to be called to that role. But now he says, now, there's another role, an important role, a serving role in the church. And these are what these people are to look like. Diakonos is not a generic word speaking of anyone doing any service. But it's a specific role in the organization of the household of God. But note this, it's a role, not a title. A role, not a title. Now, some of us guys would do well to learn this from our wives who, who would say, in fact, we were talking about this just the other day, about men and women, and whether or not women can be deacons and that whole thing, which we're going to get to in a minute, that ought to be fun. And I was talking with my wife, and she said, well, you know, the thing is, women don't need titles. You know, I kind of went, oh, how holy are you? I've been working for my title a long time, and I deserve it. But it's true, it's not about a title. Whether you're called an elder or a pastor or a deacon, it doesn't matter. The title is not the issue. What you're doing is the issue. The role, how you are serving and what you are called to do in your service. And so the role of servant is just that, it's a role. But check this out, the role of the diakonos, the deacon, the servant, is also revelatory. Revelatory. Look at verse 9. I don't even know if revelatory is a word, but it sounds good and it starts with R. Verse 9 says, Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So the servant is one who is holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What exactly does that mean? A clear conscience gang is absolutely, unequivocally believing in and holding fast to the mystery. What's the mystery? Look down at verse 16. Paul tells us. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that is God, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The mystery game. The mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is my personal opinion, it's my understanding here, that no one should serve in church leadership, and consequently no one will serve in church leadership at the bridge who does not believe in and hold fast to the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. The mystery. Why does Paul call it a mystery? Because in the Old Testament times, it was unknown. It was not understood that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was also the grand and reigning and mighty king of Zechariah 14. The Jewish people didn't understand that. They didn't get the dichotomy there. And so Jesus comes along revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, resurrected, and we see this fantastic, awesome king. We realize Jesus, the suffering servant, is the mighty king, and the mystery becomes clear. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the mystery. Paul says the diakonos will actually reveal that in his service. How's that work? How does a deacon reveal the mystery of godliness simply in his service as a deacon? Jesus says in Luke 22:27, Who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves, waits at the table, diakoneo. What's, what's the greater place? He says, is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. Listen, when I serve, especially an undeserving person, I not only identify the person of Jesus Christ, I reveal him. 
as I serve, and especially as I serve people who others would look at and go, why are you doing that for them? I don't get that. Because Jesus did it for me, and none of the angels got that. As I serve, I look like Jesus. I reveal Jesus. And so, the diakonos is revelatory simply in serving. He becomes, or she becomes, a picture of Jesus. She? Yeah, number three. The role of the servant, not just a role, or it, 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 it is a role, the role of the servant is revelatory, but the role of the servant, number three, is not restricted. It's not restricted. Look at verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And I know what you're saying. Can of worms time. You're saying, it doesn't read that way in my Bible. Maybe you have the, the, new, the NIV, or maybe you have the King James Version, or a different version. And what you read when you look down at verse 11 is, their wives. That's not what the word says. The word in the original Greek there that we have translated, their wives, the New American Standard, correctly translates women. It's simply women. The Greek word is gune. How do you like that, girls? <laughs> to be a woman in the Greek, you are a gune. You know, made a movie about them at one point, the goonies. <laughs> Literally a woman. That's what the word means. The word means woman. Now, I know some of you, I know Jim right now is thinking, well, wait a minute, I looked up the word and it said woman or wise. It could be either one. Well, let's talk about that for a second. The literal translation is woman. The way it is translated wives is only in the context of the husband. A man and his woman. They will translate that. If it says a man and his woman in the Greek, they will translate woman wives at that point because it's connected to or drawn to the man. Everywhere else, gune simply means woman. For example, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember that story? John chapter 4. Jesus goes and sits down and the woman comes up. She's there all by herself and it's noon. And she is probably not the, doesn't have the greatest reputation. Here's a woman who we find out later in the chapter has been married five times and now is living with the sixth guy. She's not even married to him. Jesus all the way through the chapter calls her Gune, woman. She's not a wife. She's just a woman. Yeah, but she was a wife. Yeah, five times. But right now she's not. Jesus turns to Mary when he is hanging up on the cross, John 19, 26. He says this, he says, Woman, behold your son. Well, yeah, but Mary was a wife. Probably not at that point. There was no Joseph to care for Mary. There was only Mary who at that point was most likely widowed. And so Jesus looks down from the cross in his inimitable, amazing, caring manner. And he says, I need someone to take care of mom." Because I'm not going to be here to do it. John, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And that word woman is gune. It's just simply woman. Now gune, again, can in some instances mean wives, but only if it's connected. If this verse said, a deacon's gune, <laughs> a diakonos gune, then we would understand it's a deacon's wife. It doesn't say that. It says gune likewise, and that's important to note as well. I do not believe that this is the case that we're talking about a deacon's wife here, but we're simply talking about a woman in the role of diakonosis. <laughs> Deaconess. Now listen, and I know there are probably those who would disagree with this. I have in different times in my life. But this is not a possessive pronoun. 
You'd have to know a little Greek to know that. But the word gune here as it's expressed is not a possessive pronoun. In other words, the word woman is not grammatically connected or tied to the word diakonos. It is a different word. Furthermore, there's another word that's typically overlooked in this debate. Look at the verse. It says, some of your Bibles might say, even so their wives, or even so women, or women must likewise. The word likewise is a critical word in understanding, in understanding this because it's the Greek word husautos. Oh, well that clears up everything. Thanks, Rick. Husautos. Husautos is a Greek word that is only used, gang, in a series or in a list of things. When you are moving on from one series to another. Look back at verse 8. Deacons likewise. Husautos. Paul has talked about elders, now he's done talking about elders, and he's shifting and he's going to talk about deacons. And so he begins to list things about a deacon, a man. And we know it's a man because at that point he talks about being the husband of one wife. And then he gets down and suddenly in verse 11 he says, women, husautos. He's shifting gears. We're now at the next part of the outline. And he's indicating some things specifically for a woman who is a servant, a diakonos, in that role in the church. Well, I've had a problem with that, Rick. I'm uncomfortable with that whole idea. The idea of women being deaconesses. You're just saying women can be the lowly servants, right? Well, it's only in man's economy that this sounds demeaning. The Bible doesn't make, and hear me on this, the Bible does not make any provision for a woman to be an elder in that role of steward of the household. It's very clear in the scriptures that an elder is a man. I've said this before, I think because if women could be elders, none of the men would do it. (laughs) We just sit home with the, you know, (laughs) let the women take care of everything. As you see happen, it's interesting in churches where women can do those different roles, you tend to see guys pulling back. God knows the heart of man and he knows we need to be pushed. Well, maybe we do need the title, guys. I don't know. But when we're talking about elders and deacons in God's economy, remember, the lower you go, the higher the honor. Again, you might say, well, I'm not even comfortable with a woman being diakonos. And I ask you, is that scripture or is it tradition talking? Is it what you're used to? Because if the role of deacon is a role and not a title, and it's not about some kind of position, then why does it matter? What are we concerned about? Can a woman not serve just as a man serves? We have a couple of deaconesses at the bridge already. Did you know that? We slipped them in on you. (laughs) Laura Pierce, directing our children's ministry, is functioning in the role of diaconess. She's a servant, assigned to a role, a task. Cheryl Crawford, my wife, and I remind her, you know, every day at home, I'm the elder, you're the, sh- you're, you're the deacon. <laughs> Make sure where on the ladder we stand. Based on what I said earlier, that's me here and it's her up there. <laughs> but gang, if you're uncomfortable with women serving, we're in trouble. We might as well shut down the whole operation. Because we have all been called to be servants. We have all called to serve the Lord together in this fellowship. Besides the fact, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a diakonos of the church, which is in Sincrea. 
oh, it just means she's a servant. No, she's called out. She has a specific role. It's very clear in the way that Paul describes her. Follow Paul's writings, Acts chapter 18. Paul meets the familiar Corinthian couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And it's fascinating to me that Priscilla's name comes first oftentimes in the scriptures, which is unusual. But Priscilla and Aquila traveled with and they served with Paul. And he mentions them in Romans 16.3 and 1 Corinthians 16.9 and in 2 Timothy 4.19. And there, two times he puts Prissa's name first. He calls her Prissa later in the scriptures. She's Priscilla when he first meets her and later as Prissa. He's gotten to know her and he's comfortable with her. It's, a, it's a, an affectionate way of, of calling out her name. And in other lists, in the scriptures, we see Paul mentioning Mary, Julia, Claudia, Athea. He mentions the church that met in Nympha's house. You, don't go anywhere with that name. You can even make a case. <laughs> you can even make... I know some of you are twisted. You can even make a case for the whole entire second letter of John being written to a woman named Kyria. There are those who are saying, no, it's just he's talking about the lady of the church. But it can go either way there. But here's the bottom line. Let me just state it as clearly as possible. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can I hear an amen from some of the guys? Some of the men are going, we're in trouble now. (laughs) Hey, read on. The role of servant develops, gang. Number four, real confidence. Look at verse 12. Deacons then must be husbands of only one wife. Then good managers, and of course then people say, well, if the deacon has to be a husband of one wife, then what about the woman? Does she have to, you know... Let the elders worry about that. Let's just read on. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own household. I will make this comment about it as far as we're, as long as we're digging a pit here. Um, the whole idea that deacons must be husband of one wife, you can imply one of two things. That women, deaconesses, need to be married as well. And I think there's wisdom in that. And you can also imply the other thing, that the guys need to be married, the women not necessarily. Guys, you feeling a little uncomfortable here? <laughs> a little swash. Lord, thank you for not being more specific there. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I love this. If you are a deacon, you have, and it says a high standing here. Don't really like that translation because the word really is good. A solid footing. You have a good standing and you have a great confidence in the faith. The role of servant develops real confidence. Great confidence in the faith. It means this, gang. The more you serve, the more bold you will become in your faith. And that's a good thing. It's not about knocking doors. It's about service because the more you serve, the more like Jesus you become. And the more like Jesus you become, the more like His Spirit you are. And the more His Spirit is upon you. And as that progresses, guess what? You become bold. You become confident in the Lord. And not afraid to speak the name. And to be clear about who Jesus Christ truly is in your life. James chapter 2 verse 22 says, As a result of works, faith is perfected. Isn't that interesting? As a result of works, faith is perfected. What's he saying there? The more we serve, the more real our faith becomes. 
is putting hands and feet on that which we believe. That which we know to be true. Show me a servant in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and I will show you someone who has confidence in their faith. Show me someone who is not willing to serve and I'll show you someone who doesn't really know the Lord real well yet. Because the more you know the Lord, the more you want to serve. Now, if it's all about serving, is there really a practical difference between deacons and elders? Yes, there is. Both, both roles are positions of service, but the difference is simply their place of service. Turn now to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Let me just explain that. Hellenistic is the Greek Jews. It's proselyte Jews. It's those who were Greek by, by upbringing and, and had been, been proselytized, become Jews, become Christians. And so what we're seeing here is the native Hebrew Christians were kind of looking down a little bit on the non-native Hebrew Christians. And so their widows were being overlooked. So, verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. How arrogant is that? Even now, in understanding what the passage truly is talking about here, it sounds a little weird for, for the apostles to make that kind of a comment. You bring this issue to us and they say, It's not our job to wait tables. We need someone else to do that. Reading on, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. That's interesting. All they needed was some guys to serve. And the apostle said, Make sure they're full of the Spirit. Make sure that they have good reputations and are full of wisdom. Why? Because service, it needs that. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and <laughs> Pumba, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And watch what happened as a result of this organization. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. At first glance, again, you might think, Peter, the apostles, they're being arrogant. You guys serve us. We're going to retreat to the ivory tower and consider the high-minded things of the church. Well, you guys are serving, and while you're at it, bring us the head of a pig. And a goblet of something cool and refreshing. Anyone have a fiddle? You know, I quote Brian Regan, comedian. Gang, listen. Both the apostles, and don't miss this, both the apostles and the servants here, both the elders and the diakonos in a church are involved in serving. The difference is the place of their service. What do you mean? Look back here at verse 3. Actually, verse 2. 
The 12 said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. The word serve there is the same word that's used in verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's diakonos. We need some people to diakonos tables while we diakonos the word. We need some people to take care of some of the practical working, serving among the fellowship, among the congregation, but we cannot give up the service or ministry of the Word. And far too many churches will do that. Elders and deacons alike will give up the ministry of the Word, will cast it aside and become wonderful at serving the needs of the fellowship, wonderful at developing this program and that program, while the Word sits on the shelf gathering dust and the church begins to get hungry. Because nobody is servicing the Word. Nobody is diakonising the ministry of the Word. Deacons, wait on the needs. Elders, wait on the Word and pray. Because that's where our power comes from. That's where our direction comes from. That's why we're even able to have this conversation this morning. It's because time has been spent in the Word so we can know what the Lord would have for us. And I've learned this the hard way over the years that the highest premium in the fellowship is prayer and the ministry of the Word. The two most important things any church can do. And programs will come and go. Ministries will rise and fall. Activities will be there sometimes and they won't be there the other time. Women, you're going to have your pajama party this year. You might not have it next year. But the Word. We've got to have the Word. Deacons wait on the needs. Serve the tables of the household of faith. That we not be a church who says, go and be filled to people while they wander off empty. But elders, wait on the Word and pray that we not be a church well fed in our bellies, but starving in our souls. The ministry of the Word. We were talking about this just last couple weeks ago at our elders meeting, that our eldership, our guys, we have in many ways been functioning as deacons. Because we've had to. Because in, in the beginning of things with the bridge, there's a lot of tasks to be done. And as I said last week, those tasks are, are becoming many and plenteous and more than what the elders can do. And what begins to happen then is the shepherds, who are supposed to be about prayer and the ministry of the Word, start spending more time in their meetings talking about issues than talking about the Word, than focused on the Holy Spirit, than seeking the Lord and saying, What do you want for us, Father? Show me a church where the eldership spends 90% of their meetings in prayer and I will show you a church that is growing in the Lord. And that's what we desire here. And that's why, again, suddenly we're at this place where we're saying, deacons, diakonos, servants assigned to a task, to specific roles. It is critical for the needs of this fellowship to be met, for people to be cared for and loved. Not so the elders can sit off and just do their whatever, but so that they can spend the time in prayer. That they can spend the time in the Word, finding out what it is the Lord has for us. But both elders and deacons, both shepherds and servants, are serving the body and the spirit of the household. And when it's done, well, when it's done by the Spirit, oh, verse 7, the Word of God, it keeps on spreading. And the number of the disciples continues to increase greatly. And not just in Jerusalem, but on North Whidbey Island as well. Now, regarding deacons, I didn't have the greatest relationship with deacons when I was growing up. I was somewhat of a pain in the fuse. I was the kid who caused much distress 
to some of our lowly deacons. I feel bad about it now, but I'll never forget one summer night when I squared off with, with one of our deacons in the foyer. Now, mind you, my dad was an elder. He was, you know, higher on the rung. And I, I kind of look at the deacons as the little elder wannabes. You know, not quite spiritually as great as my own father, hence, you know, our family. And this deacon corners me in the foyer and he says, I can't believe that I see my own eyes here. How dare you wear sandals to church? And I quickly replied, why not? Jesus did. <laughs> well, snot-nosed brat. <laughs> For that matter, so did the apostles. As a matter of fact, I bet if we could transport you back to the first century, you'd see everybody at church wearing sandals. So who's the more spiritual here? <laughs> he must have wanted to slap my face off. <laughs> I believe it was standard attire in the early church. And then I said, and I did, I quote, How dare you wear black leather shoes? (laughs) I was wrong, (laughs) on the one hand, to disrespect in that way. But looking back on this over the years, I was right on the other hand. Didn't know it at the time. But listen, the greatest aspiration of a Christian is to learn to wear Jesus' sandals. To walk as he walked. To move as he moved. To live like he lived. And the apostles had a hard time getting this at first. As they walked with Jesus, they saw him in the miracles. They saw him in prayer. They heard him teaching. And yet they didn't quite get what this whole God thing was about. What the serving of Christ was about. In Mark chapter 10 verse 37, James and John came to Jesus and they had a great request. And you can see where their hearts were at and how unlearned these men were. They said, Jesus, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And that's what they thought was coming. That's what they were looking forward to, the overthrow of Rome and the glory of this new kingdom. Can we sit on your right and on your left? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, (laughs) paraphrase, you have no idea what you're asking. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And again, he said to him, you guys are clueless. You don't know. Jesus went on to say, James and John, you are going to drink the cup that I drink. You are going to be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized. And he was speaking about suffering and he was speaking about the cross. And James and John knew suffering in their lives. James, the first apostle, martyred. John, the oldest apostle to live, it said toward the end of his life, before he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, where he received the revelation, you know what happened to John? They tried to kill him, but it didn't take. They boiled him in oil. And it didn't work. He didn't die. So they stuck him out on a rock and left him there. You will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Which gang, this brings us to the lowest point of service in our list this morning. Lower than oikonomos, stewards. Lower than diakonos, servants. Notice we're going down here to the lowest point, which is word number three, slave. And in the Greek it's the word doulos. Doulos. It is the lowest form of servant listed in the Bible and it literally means bond servant. Turn to Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6. It's a phenomenal book, the book of Romans. I can't wait till we get to it. Oh, ye of little faith. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves, doulos, there's the word, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became, alright, slaves. We were slaves. And we have become slaves. You were slaves of sin. And you were freed... Like the servant in Deuteronomy 15, free to become a slave again. Paul says, now you are slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Resulting in sanctification. A couple of things to quickly note here. The bondservant, the slave, the doulos, is born into his or her servitude. To be a bondservant, you are born a bondservant. In other words, from the day you're born on, you don't have any choice. You are a slave. And that's the deal for your life, doulos, bondservant, bondslave. You're stuck there. That's why we have to be born again. Because we were born into slavery, every one of us, slavery to sin. Slavery to the sin nature. And all the debate that rages about is man good or is man inherently evil? Gang, man is inherently evil. If that were not the case, we would be in a better world than the one in which we live. It is only because of the move of the Holy Spirit in this world that there is any good at all. And so we must be born again. We were slaves to sin, born into that. Born again, you become a slave to righteousness. Jesus said, John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. And the doulos was born into slavery. Because of this, the doulos was bound to his master for life. That's the second thing to note. The bondservant is not just born, he is bound. That's what bondservant means. Literally, doulos means bind. To bind. You want to become a deep, true, abiding servant of the Lord in the deepest, richest sense. Then you become bound. You step lower than oikonomos, lower than diakonos, to the very bottom rung. You step off the ladder to the doulos where you are bound to the Lord. And gang, there is literally only one thing that can free the doulos, and that's the death of the master. If someone is a slave, a doulos, in Jesus' day, then they are bound to the master at least until the day the master dies. And Kenneth Moost, in his Word Studies on the New Testament, which, by the way, I would recommend everybody to have on their shelf, Word Studies in the New Testament by Kenneth Woost, W-U-E-S-T, incredible, incredible treatment of the Scriptures. He writes, we were in a permanent state to Satan. We were bound to Satan. Until by our identification with Christ and his death, those bonds were broken. As Barb talked about this morning, 
That we do not forget what has happened, His benefits, the bonds that we were bound with to Satan were broken by Jesus at Calvary. And Wu says, now we are in a permanent relationship to Jesus Christ. Bond servants of righteousness. A relationship which only death can break. But praise God, Jesus will never die again. So once you become bound to Him in this relationship, you cannot ever lose that relationship because Jesus will not die again and neither will you. Bound to Jesus Christ forever because He lives, we live. And since He never dies, we will never die. Romans chapter 6 verse 20, Paul went on and said, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you don't have to worry about it. Live your life however you want. Do whatever you want. You don't even have to care. Chuck Smith wrote in his book Charisma versus Charismania, which is a great book, he made the comment that it's not until a person becomes born again that there begins the battle between flesh and spirit. If you're not born again, there's no battle. You're not enslaved to anything but you know your sin. You can do whatever you want. You can be nice to someone if you want to. You can be a jerk. doesn't matter. There's no battle. But when you're born again, suddenly the battle begins. Which is why, my friends, when you become Christians, sometimes life gets harder. Because now you're aware that there's a tension there. Now suddenly you're seeing. And the conviction goes beyond the Spirit convicting the world of sin. It goes into this heart level thing where you're going day in and day out. Why can't I be more like Christ? Why do I struggle, Lord? Why is this battle going on within me? Because you've been born again. You've been born a slave of righteousness. And that's a good thing. Paul says, verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Forget not all His benefits. You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal Christ, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, enslaved to God. The doulos, His will is swallowed up in the will of the Master. My will abandoned to the interests of the Lord. That's what Jesus showed us when He walked on the face of the earth. I don't do anything without checking with my Father. I don't speak anything that I haven't heard from my Father. I only live to do my Father's will. And you remember His cry in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but Your will be done. The doulos, the servant, cannot even function outside of the will of the Master. And I ask you the question, can we truly drink the cup that He drank? Can we be baptized with the baptism He was baptized with? Because as we said last week, it wasn't an ear that was pierced for Jesus as a servant. It was a body that was prepared. A body that was pierced. A picture of the doulos, the bondservant, the slave. Paul says in Philippians 2.7, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a doulos, a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did Paul say before writing that? Have this mind in yourself. You think like Jesus thought. He pursued the, the position of bondservant. You do the same. Jesus said a servant is not above his master, is he? A student, a pupil is not above the teacher, is he? You do what Jesus did. 
Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. And so I ask you, how far are you willing to go for the master? How low are you willing to lay down for the Lord Jesus Christ? How much service are you willing to do? You know what? In God's economy, the strongest and greatest desire of a Christian person would not even to ever be a steward or a servant of the Akinos. The greatest position is doulos, slave. That's the one we're all called to. That's the one that we pursue. But to get there, gang, you have to drink the cup that Jesus drank. Be baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized, which is why each one of the apostles, one by one in the writings of the New Testament, referred to themselves first as bondservants, then as apostles. We don't even know sometimes what we're talking about when we say we want to do this. But it requires the absolute giving of your entire life. Last thing, loved ones, the slave, the bondservant, is so consumed by the will of the master that the bondservant is literally blind to any reward. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And the Lord said in Luke 12, 42, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, oikonomos, whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Now don't miss this. Blessed is that slave, doulos, whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Wait a minute, you might say, I thought steward and slave were two different things, but they're used interchangeably here. Yes, they are. But one is an activity in the house, a steward, maybe an elder, activity in the house. The other one is the attitude of the heart. Because you can be an elder and be a doulos. You can be a a deacon and be a doulos. You don't have to be an elder or a deacon. You can be a doulos, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. Whether I function in role as a steward or a servant, the highest calling of any Christian, regardless of ministry or function, is that of bondservant. And the bondservant gang is blind to the reward. The bondservant isn't even looking for the reward. What are you talking about? Aren't we looking for the coming of Jesus Christ? Haven't I heard you say a hundred times, Rick, that we live to that day, that we look forward to that day? That we become purified, even as John says, that we become here as we're longing for the coming of Jesus. Aren't we looking toward the reward? So how can you say the doulos is blind to the reward? And listen, the bondservant is fully aware of his master's imminent return. But his greatest reward is seeing pleasure in the face of his master when he comes. And so the bond slave is not standing on a hill going, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? The bond slave is too busy working in the household of the faith, serving others, loving people, to the point that when the master comes, the master finds the bond slave slaving. Why would the bond slave do that? Because he knows he's longing to see that pleasure in his master's face. He's longing to turn around as he hears the voice and see the master looking at him saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, I'm so proud of you. Okay, forget the crowns. Forget the blessings of eternity. Forget everything else. And can you just for a moment focus on the face of the Lord Jesus and how he will look when he comes. What he will look like when he looks at you. And finds you in your place of ministry. 
Will he be pleased? Will he have that smile on his face as of a father looking at a child learning to walk? Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. What's he going to look like when you see him? We finished last week and I had a conversation afterwards that stunned me for a moment. I really had to process it. The person I was talking to made this comment. She said, the church is so focused on what we get out of Christ. Isn't that true today? But the church in the world, and especially in these United States, is so focused on how God blesses me. On how my life can be enriched and improved and bettered by following the Lord. How how I can find more enjoyment and pleasure in discovering who, who I am and why I'm here. And that is so much the focus. This person went on to say that in reality, and listen to this, process this, in reality, the reason we come to Christ is not even about our salvation. She said that and I went, what? I don't know about you, but I came to Christ to get saved, sister. Think about it. The reason you come to Christ is because of who He is. Period. If there was no eternal salvation, if God so ordained when He created this world and put us on it, that we would get 60, 70, 80 years, and that's it, would it not be enough that God is God? That He is Lord? That He cared enough to love us, to even put us here? And that all that He is, is all that I want to be about? Regardless of what I get for it. Because I love the Master. And I love the Master's household. And I love serving in His house. We come to Christ Jesus because of who He is. And when she spoke those words, I thought later, those words are spoken like a true slave. A bondservant. Jesus Christ is our Master. And as for you and me, our highest aspiration is the lowliest estate, doulos, bondservant, slave. And Father, we come before you asking that you will teach this fellowship to be slaves. God, we have many stewards among us. Many of us good at managing this or that. Many of us who who enjoy overseeing areas of ministry, who want to, to take those things on. God, and that's a blessing. It's a good thing for the fellowship to have stewards. We need stewards. And God, we have those among us who are real get-it-done people. Great for that role of diakonos, deacons, servants. People, you can, you can hand, them, hand them the baton and man, they run. And, and Lord, we need that in this fellowship. We need stewards and servants working hand-in-hand hand together that the body might be blessed. But God, the one thing we need more than anything else and the thing we ask for, Lord, with trembling, is that we might learn how to become bond servants, slaves. And Father, I, I do know what I'm asking. When I say, allow us, Lord, to be a people who are baptized with the baptism of Jesus. A people, Father, who are so willing to give up that we will drink the cup that Jesus drank. The one that Jesus prayed would pass from him, nevertheless, not as he willed, but, Father, as you will. 
Father, I'd be lying if I didn't say that doesn't scare me. But more than anything else, Lord, I want to see your face. I don't want to see your pleasure. And I want you to be proud of me, Lord. I pray this for our fellowship. Lord, I ask that you will give a spiritual protection against the desire to become powerful and authoritative and great in our own eyes. That God, this will be a place that people are continually going down. Father, level at the foot of the cross. And if you happen to be praying this morning and you're thinking about these things, and you realize in your life that you are the one in control, that you are the master of your life, and maybe it's not working out so well for you, then I invite those of you in that place to join those of us who have simply discovered the very same thing, that we're sinners and we need Jesus. I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I am a slave to sin. And I want to be freed. I'm tired of mismanaging my own life. And I want you to be my master. I want to trade out slavery to sin, to slavery to righteousness and all that you are. I want to walk with you and learn of you, Father. Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you died on that cross for me to free me from my sin. I believe you resurrected on that third day to provide life eternal. And I only ask today that you will take me, Lord, and be my Savior and be my Lord. And I pray this in the precious name of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.